Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today I have the opportunity of speaking to Dr. David Garrison. He is the executive director of Global Gates. It's a mission organization that focuses on bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to unreached people groups living in major urban centers. It's a wonderful and fairly new uh, ministry, and we want him to talk about that. But first of all, David, let me welcome you to the podcast and just ask you to introduce yourself to us a bit. Thank you, Timothy. It's a pleasure to be here. I grew up a Southern Baptist, a small uh, town in Arkansas, got to hear the gospel from the time I was on the cradle roll, Uh, married a high school sweetheart there, and um, uh, all our lives we had been uh, influenced by a a pastor who was a missionary kid himself, Mm -hmm. and so... um, that uh, that opened our hearts to missions, and I think the Great Commission, of course, is for everybody. But uh, in the course of following uh, God, we uh, we served uh, as missionary journeymen in Hong Kong mm-hmm. for uh, two years. And uh, I think for some you, of our listeners who don't know the journeyman program, just mm-hmm. briefly describe what it is. <laughs> well, you know, it was, it was a program of Southern Baptists that was modeled after the Peace Corps. Uh, recognizing that uh, many, many Christians uh, feel uh, an affection and affinity for missions but don't necessarily have a calling. They could go and give two years of service uh, out of college, uh, in my case, right out of seminary, and we lived in Hong Kong for two years. And uh, if you'd ask us probably three months into that time uh, what we thought about missions, we'd say, we just want to go home. <laughs> uh, culture shock and all of that was uh, part of that process. But uh, about a year into it, we had a breakthrough. Started seeing uh, young people both at uh, International Baptist Church and at Hong Kong Baptist uh, University where I was teaching uh, responding to the gospel and God using us. And the sense of being used by God has got to be the greatest high that, that human life has to offer. And so about a year in, we actually asked God if he would let us do this the rest of our lives. You know, we, we called him. And by his grace and his mercy, uh, he said yes. And uh, we've been on a wild adventure ever since. It's taken I know us all you, the world. you yourself were involved with the International Mission Board for a number of years, right? Oh, yes. And virtually every, every corner of the International Mission Board. Uh, when I first met you, you were working with the IMB, as we call it. And uh, this is a somewhat new formation of missions that has come about. Um, but tell us how that all happened. Yeah, we uh, we had been working with the International Mission Board for uh, 31 years um, uh, over the course of our lifetime. Lived 25 different places, you know, all over the world. Studied a lot of different languages and cultures, but always uh, the central focus was the unreached people groups, those that had little or no access to the gospel. And when we came back to America, we took an assignment in 2009 working with the broader evangelical world. That took us to the Colorado Springs area, where there's over 200 agencies. Uh, with offices there. And while we were there, we were contacted by this ministry called Global Gates. And Global Gates uh, was made up of uh, former uh, foreign missionaries who'd worked in Indonesia and West Africa and for various reasons had to come back to America uh, for health reasons or for children's uh, health issues. But rather than just go back home to their homes in Texas or South Carolina, they actually found their people group 
in the thousands living in New York City. Mm. So they moved into Queens. They moved into Harlem, moved into Bronx. And before long, there were uh, gathering numbers of missionaries who were called to an unreached people group and were stunned to find that there were, for example, 60,000 Afghan Muslims living in Fremont, California, Mm. in the South Bay area, or that there were over 100,000 West African Muslims living in Harlem where we can have access to them, reach them. And this um, this caused a real paradigm shift. We had a, uh, uh, a realization that God was opening up doorways to the ends of the earth, mm. global gateways, if you will, in these uh, urban centers. And they contacted me about uh, uh, around 2010 and said, David, uh, would you be interested in working with us? And I, I did some training for them, joined their board of directors. And then later, um, my wife, Sandy, and I felt like God was leading us to make the big jump. We, mm-hmm. we stepped away from the IMB, always loving Southern Baptist, the International Mission Board, but uh, feeling like this was a strategic gap mm-hmm. uh, that needed to be addressed somewhere between the North American Mission Board, which was doing a lot of church planting, but not really focused on unreached people groups, and the International Mission Board, which was focused on people groups, unreached people groups, but not working in the United States. So we at Global Gates feel like we're building a bridge between those two, those two uh, strategic ministries. Now, ever since the days of the apostles, there have been unreached people groups, but that term is relatively new, isn't it? Can you say a little bit about how that become a part of our missionary vocabulary? It, it is, and it's a, it is a very important concept. Uh, you know, the biblical term for it is called the ends of the earth. Uh, Jesus made it very clear. He and his disciples had been to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They knew those places. The ends of the earth was everywhere that Jesus had not yet gone. So in his day, it, 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 uh, encompassed uh, probably 99.9% of the world's population. But as the gospel has spread, those frontiers have been moved farther and farther uh, away uh, from the kingdom of God. And to this day, there's still a huge sector of the world that has little access to the gospel. It takes real intentionality, and missionaries have gone at great risk, great peril, great challenge. Often there's several languages insulating these people groups, uh, for example, in Central Asia or in Western China or in North India. Several languages you have to work through just to get to their language. Yeah. What's amazing today, Timothy, is that God is bringing these communities from virtually every people group on earth into our own backyard. Mm. We find them, for example, 13,000 Kurdish Muslims from northern Iraq living in Nashville, Tennessee. I mean, it's amazing. I was in in a suburb of of Nashville a, a few years ago speaking at one of our good churches there. And and uh, that night I got a little hungry, so I went out to a, a local pizza place. And while I was waiting, I noticed these guys looked to me. They were talking about halal pizza. Ah. <laughs> that told me something's going on here. No and I pepperoni, at, right? No, that's right. No <laughs> pepperoni. And uh, they looked a little bit exotic. I started talking to them. It turns out they were Hazara people. And I knew the Hazara. They're from Afghanistan. They're descendants of Genghis Khan's army that invaded Afghanistan in the 13th century. Yeah. 
And they're unusual because they still speak a form of Mongolian language right there in the middle of Afghanistan. And here they are in the suburbs of Nashville, Tennessee, where we can share the gospel with them. That's wonderful. I want to throw out another term. It's it's kind of passe now, but I'd be interested to hear you talk about AD 2000. There was a movement, and it related to unreached people groups, I think. Uh, Say a little bit about that. And we're, what, uh, 18 years past that 2000 mark. What was that? And what impact does it still have? Well, it was very exciting. It really related to Southern Baptists in the area of Bold Mission Thrust. You might remember back in the 1970s, there was this uh, audacious vision that I think was a God-based vision to take the gospel to every man, woman, and child on earth by the year 2000. And uh, it turns out a lot of mission agencies, a lot of evangelicals across the spectrum of, of the country were having similar vision statements to reach everyone by 2000. Uh, a fellow named David Barrett, oh yeah, editor of the World Christian Encyclopedia, came in and actually uh, joined up with the staff of the International Mission Board around 1985, and he was challenged with the task of how are we doing in fulfilling this vision. And what he pointed out was that we were really doing a remarkable job, except that there's no way we would ever reach that vision because we were sending out more and more missionaries to the same places. Mm-hmm. So virtually uh, 60% of the world's population were receiving no missionaries at all. And the reason for that, we would say, was because, well, you can't get a missionary visa there to China, to the Soviet Union at that time, to the Muslim world. And it was out of that tension, that creative tension of having a vision that we believed was from God, but having a paradigm of missions that could not achieve that vision that we birthed some new paradigms. And one of those was called the non-residential missionary. We would assign missionaries to a people group inside that uh, closed part of the world, even if that missionary could not reside there or had to go in and out as, as a tourist or as a business person. That revolutionized our approach to missions. We were able to focus now not just on sending more and more missionaries to the same countries, uh, but to deploy our missionaries more strategically to people who had never heard the gospel. This led to a tremendous awakening, uh, not only in our mission force, but among the people who were taking the gospel to. Who knew that we would then see the greatest harvest fields in the world coming out of that restricted part of the world? So our biggest turnings, our, our greatest numbers of baptisms started coming from places like the former Soviet Union, places like the Muslim world, places like uh, North India and China. Uh, even Cuba uh, today has thousands of Baptist churches that have exploded after we assigned a non-residential missionary to work with uh, with the struggling church there and begin to pour gospel uh, resources into those uh, difficult places. Yeah. Well, you know, some people are... A- associated with one book. Uh, you've written several books, but I wanted you to talk about the book for which you are best known. And I want to I want you to introduce it to our listeners. It's a great book. And if you haven't read it and you're listening to the Beeson Podcast, you need to go to Amazon.com and buy it and read it. The book is entitled A Wind in the House of Islam. How did you write that book? What's it about? Well, thank you uh, for that uh, plug for the book. I appreciate that. I wish every Christian uh, knew what God is doing in the Muslim world today. And that's really part of what inspired this. You know, when my wife and I went to North Africa, we studied Arabic, lived in Egypt and Tunisia, working with Libyan Arabs, tough, tough situation. We didn't see a lot of 
response. In fact, I used to joke that I learned hundreds of ways not to win Muslims to Christ because <laughs> uh, we didn't see them just racing to the baptistry. Ten years later, our family relocated to India, and we just had Muslim background believer partners from all over. We were seeing a lot of response. We had over 100,000 uh, Bengalis who had come to faith in Christ and been baptized. And, uh, and we were hearing reports of movements among the Fulani in West Africa, among Kazakhs in Central Asia, among uh, Iranians and, and others. But it was almost like, can this be real? So I received a phone call one day from uh, Executive Vice President of Pioneers, another growing, booming mission organization. He said, David, we're having the same questions. We're, we're wondering, can this be real? Would you be willing to take some time to go and survey these? Well, I talked to my colleagues and uh, superiors at the International Mission Board, and they said, yeah, let's block out some time. Uh, I thought I would just maybe take a year, do some samples, a dozen or so samples from a dozen or so movements. I ended up visiting 44 different movements. I spent three years, traveled a quarter of a million miles, and uh, was able to see something I never imagined uh, learning. I got over a 1,000 interviews, uh, each of them from movements of at least a 1,000 baptized believers in different movements in the Muslim world. And I was so stunned by this, the, the things they were telling me, what I was seeing, and it was so different than what I remembered from our time in North Africa that uh, – I wondered if this had ever happened before. So I went back and did a historical retrospective. When in history have there ever been movements? And we, we documented every time there's been at least a thousand baptized believers. It, it made history. Mm. So we could point to when this happened. We could describe it as much as history would allow. And then we compared it with what's happening today and discovered that, uh, Timothy, 84% of all the movements to Christ in the Muslim world in history in 14 centuries have happened in the last 25 years. Mm. Something is happening today that we've never seen before. So that's the wind in the house of Islam. That's the wind, wind the in the spirit. house of Islam. Yeah. It is the wind of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus said, you know, that uh, the spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. It's got a mind of its own. And when it does blow through, you see the evidence of it. Changed lives. Uh, communities turned upside down for Jesus. And that's what we saw in West Africa, North Africa, the Arab world, Central Asia, the Persian world, South Asia, all the way across to, to Indo-Malaysia. Uh, that whole area we're seeing uh, the Holy Spirit is drawing people to faith in Jesus Christ in unprecedented numbers. You know, many of us have a monolithic view of Islam. We think of it as one big uh, conglomeration of people who uh, – Follow the worship of Allah, believe the Quran is the word of God and so forth, the, the five pillars. But you've pointed out, I think very helpfully, the diversity that is there within Islam itself. Uh, we always think about the Sunni-Shia divide as very fundamental, but there are many other uh, ways in which the Muslim world is not a monolith. I wonder if you'd say a little bit about that. Well, that's a, that's a good observation. Uh, you know, with 23% of the world's population, 1.6 billion plus adherents, uh, Islam is, uh, the fastest growing religion in the world. But even within, uh, the Muslim world, there's tremendous ferment and conflict and diversity. It, it, it's remarkable because from the outside, it may look like, oh, they all believe the same. They all practice the same. There are commonalities, but the worldviews, the history, the culture, different. West Africa with its history of uh, everything from uh, gold and now diamonds 
and slavery that has so impacted West Africa. And it's, it's insulated from uh, other parts of the world by the Atlantic to the West and the Sahara to the North and the Congo to the East. It's created its own little room in the House of Islam so that the peoples there have a shared history and shared experience. So we wanted to dive into that room and say, what's, what's God doing here? How is the wind blowing through this room? And we got stories from there that were very different from those in North Africa, the land of the Berbers, a land of uh, conquest and, and colonization that's been going on really since the Phoenicians uh, over 2,000 years ago. Uh, God is at work in a different way there. There are different stories, but the same Jesus, the same gospel, and the same Holy Spirit is blowing through. And what we were able to do in this book was literally visit every corner of the Muslim world. We, we identified nine distinct geocultural zones or rooms in the House of Islam. And we visited each of those rooms to see how are Muslims coming to Christ here. Mm-hmm. And we would ask them, tell us your story. What did God use to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ? And our thinking was, if we can learn from them how the Holy Spirit is at work, how God is at work, then we can better adjust our own approaches to align them, if you will, with the ways the wind is blowing so that we can ride that wave of what God is doing, catch that wind, and and not just do our own thing, but be a part of what God is doing in those rooms. So that you've identified these nine rooms, and does that cut across the Sunni-Shia divide? Well, the the majority of the Shia are in uh, Iran, and so the Persian world becomes one of those rooms, and uh, certainly its influence spills down into other areas like we've seen in Yemen and parts of the uh, the Persian Gulf and parts of, uh, of uh, Afghanistan where the Persian language, a variation of it called Dari, is spoken in Afghanistan and then up into Tajikistan in the former Soviet Union. So it is more concentrated there. That is sort of the Shiite uh, hub. And uh, and consequently, we're seeing uh, a different way that people are responding to the gospel there. In fact, some would say in that Iranian corner or that Iranian room in the House of Islam, uh, people are responding to almost everything, uh, every way the gospel is being presented. We're just seeing probably the greatest number of uh, Muslims coming to Christ today is happening there in Iran and in the Iranian diaspora that's now spread all over the world. You know, several years ago, I wrote a book called Is the Father of Jesus the God of Muhammad? And that got me into a lot of conversations with Muslims and people who had come to Christ in Islam. And so many of them told me a story about a vision of Jesus that they received, which often led them to a Bible or a missionary or some, but it, the, the vision of Christ appearing to them. Now, I came from a background that would view that sort of skeptically, mm-hmm. um, but I came to the conclusion that these people are telling the truth, yeah. that in some mysterious way, Jesus Christ has actually appeared to them in a vision, and that led them into further inquiry into, into faith often. Can you say something about that? Well, you're exactly right. And by the way, I do have your book on my bookshelf. I bought it as soon as I could get it and have really relished it. Uh, yeah, we're seeing that happen everywhere. It's just, um, it's not our, our our worldview. You know, I tell people that after Sigmund Freud, it just kind of messed it up for all of us. <laughs> we don't talk about dreams because it can be a little embarrassing. People read things into them. That's not the case in the Muslim world. Uh, now, not in every Islamic people. Like I said, they're not all the same. But it was so common to hear them talk about a dream of someone reaching out to them with love and compassion and then wanting to know who is this person. Now, they don't typically get enough in a dream to come to salvation, 
but it drives them to want to know more. And many of them have, uh, after having these dreams, they've sought out a Christian mm. or they've sought out uh, an Injil, what they call the New Testament, and they've read it and then they've discovered who this person is that has so uh, troubled their sleep for so long. And of course, we as Christians know that it's biblical. Uh, yeah. Dreams are, are from one end of the Bible to the other. It's we who have changed. Mm. And so for Muslims, they retain that regard for dreams and they get it from the prophet Muhammad. He said, you know, listen to your dreams. God may speak to you. And fortunately, uh, he seems to be doing that very thing. Now, it's interesting when, when we're speaking with Muslims, uh, we're speaking to people who already have some concept of Jesus, Isa, yeah. in the Quran, and Isa in Islam is a very important figure, a prophet. And um, say a little bit about the Muslim view of Jesus. Yeah, it's. I'll just first say it's deficient. Mm. You know, it's unfortunately it's deficient, and it is. It is. Uh, it tries to abrogate the position of Jesus in the New Testament as as the Word incarnate, as the only way of salvation, as God among us. Uh, they would reject all of those things, but they certainly know the name Isa al Masih, Jesus the Messiah, is what they call him. Uh, there are flickers of light in the Quran. Uh, the Quran uh, appropriates many things from the Old and New Testament, many stories that were circulating in Muhammad's day that he got from Christians, but oftentimes he twists them just enough to keep a Muslim sadly trapped short of seeing who Jesus really is. So even though you can begin in the Quran to introduce the subject of Jesus and then talk about Jesus, unless they bridge over into the revelation as found in Scripture, uh, they're left with a, uh, why should I ever give my life to Jesus? You know, I've sometimes recommended something. I don't know what you would think about this. It's a little bit uh, edgy or controversial. But uh, I've often said to people, um, you should read the Quran. Yeah. You, you can buy it, uh, at least an English adaptation of it, translation of it, which, of course, is not the very word of God, according to Muslim. That's only in Arabic. But you can go to a bookstore and buy the Quran. You ought to read it. And then with your Muslim friends and neighbors, invite them to tea and read with them the Quran if they will read with you the gospel. Amen. What do you think about that? Oh, I think it's wonderful. In fact, Timothy, one of the things that surprised us in our, our surveys, interviews, you know, some of the things that people told us didn't surprise us. You know, I read the scripture and I fell in love with Jesus. Okay, we expect that. But when Muslims told us, I read the Quran in my own language for the first time and I realized I was lost, mm -hmm. that stunned us. And we heard that many, many times for so many Muslims in the world today, the Quran is to them sort of what the Bible was to medieval Christians, mm. people who could not read Latin, didn't understand Latin. It hadn't been translated into the vernacular. And so for them, it was a mystical, magical book that the mm. priest alone could somehow dispense to them. Well, for so many Muslims, the, the imam is the keeper of the Quran, and they don't understand Arabic. Even Arabs don't understand 8th century Arabic. Mm. And so they, they know the formulas, they know the words, but it's still mysterious. Something happened in 19, early 1980s. King Fahd of Saudi Arabia got this idea, and I think it was God-inspired. He thought, wouldn't it be great if we translated the Quran into the language of all the peoples of the Muslim world? Maybe he was inspired by uh, Cameron Townsend with Wycliffe mm -hmm. Translators. I don't know. He thought this would help Islam. In fact, it's done more to undermine Islam than almost anything you could imagine because we've had imams and we've had devout Muslims who had memorized the Quran in Arabic say, when I read the Quran in my own language for the first time, I realized 
there is no salvation here. There's no Savior. There's nothing to deal with my sinfulness. But even in reading the Quran, they said 96 times it references Isa al-Masih. And it's always lifting Jesus up to a high level. Meanwhile, Muhammad is only mentioned four times in the Quran. And he's not the Messiah. And he's he's not the Messiah, exactly. And it's prompted them then to either have dreams and visions or go and find a scripture or find a Christian and say, I need to know more about Isa al-Masih. And that's led them into uh, a saving relationship as they've read the New Testament revelation of Jesus. I'm so glad you're visiting us here at Beeson Divinity School. We have a number of students who really have a a hunger to serve God and a a vision for doing it in the Muslim world. And we've had a number of our graduates who've gone into what we call restricted areas. We don't say where they are because it can be very dangerous. But they have a passion, uh, love for Muslim people to share with them the good news about Isa, the Messiah. And um, your ministry, the, 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 the Global Gates that we talked about earlier, focuses on a similar kind of interaction here in North America. But what would you say, uh, this is not instead of, is right. it, going no, no, no. Uh, Talk about how you those two competing visions or locales, maybe is a better word, for what we're doing. Well, you know, the world that you and I grew up in really was a, a competing vision. It was an either or. It was binary. You're either home or you're foreign. The world today is one, and the interconnectedness is just astounding. In fact, there's a young woman uh, from right here. Uh, she and her husband have just joined Global Gates, and uh, they met a, a couple from the Muslim world who were in, in one of our southern cities right here in, in the heart of the South and developed a friendship. They invited this uh, Muslim uh, family to attend church with them, uh, and they they agreed and went to church. Took them to a Christian music concert where they got to hear the gospel and all of its, you know, beauty and richness. And uh, but then they went back to uh, the Muslim world, back to the Middle East where they were from. But uh, this young Global Gates uh, missionary woman, she maintained a relationship by Skype with this uh, with the daughter in this family. And uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, this young Global Gates missionary sent me an email. She said, uh, this young woman, she's come to faith in Jesus Christ, and she wants to be baptized and join a community there deep inside the Middle East in a place where we can't send missionaries. And uh, she said, do you know someone? And we were able to talk to some of the other ministries we work with and connect that young woman. So by Skype, she came to Christ. It's not. It's no longer a, a binary world of mm. here or there. It's a both and. And our Global Gates missionaries, you know, our vision statement is reaching the ends of the earth through Global Gateway cities. Mm. So all of our missionaries, uh, they're working with unreached people groups here in our cities, but through those relationships, they're traveling back to Afghanistan, they're traveling to Palestine, they're traveling to northern Iraq, they're traveling to China and to North India. So it's truly becoming a global expression of the gospel. It's not just a home or foreign, it's a global gateway ministry. Wonderful. We're about out of time, but I wonder if you would have a word for our listeners about praying for the Muslim world. Uh, What would you say about prayer? 
You know, prayer is, is, is one of those things that's making a tremendous difference. And in my questions to Muslims who had come to Christ, you know, it's hard to, to quantify that. Uh, the, I, I'll be honest, I never had a single Muslim background believer from these movements who said, oh, yeah, it's because a little woman in Alabama was praying for me. That's why I came to Jesus. They, they don't know. But one of my friends, one of my good buddies in, uh, in Colorado, he, he does the North America distribution of 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. And he asked me as I was going out doing these, uh, these surveys, I'd come back and tell him these stories, oh, about this imam who came to Christ in this village that was now Christian. And, and he said, David, tell me how many of these movements have happened in the last uh, 24 years? And I said, well, I don't know. I hadn't thought about it. He said, well, well, look at the numbers and see. And so I went back and I checked the history of these movements. And I came back and I said, you know, it's astounding. In 14 centuries of movements, 84% of them have happened in the last 24 years. Mm. I said, well, why do you ask? And his eyes glistened with tears. And he said, David, he said, it was 24 years ago that we started 30 days of prayer for the Muslim world. So there is a correlation. And for, for Christians in America who have been afraid of the foreigner, afraid of these, uh, these Muslim, Hindu, uh, Buddhist groups, who, 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 as a result of that fear, have a, a, an anger or, or a hostility, I would just urge them to pray. Because when we pray, we see them through God's eyes. Mm. And we see that every one of these Muslims is someone for whom Jesus died and someone who needs to come to Christ. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. David Garrison. He's the executive director of Global Gates, a wonderful mission organization concerned with sharing the gospel with people groups in North America and from North America around the world. Uh, he is the author of The Non-Residential Missionary, Something New Under the Sun, Church Planting Movements, and especially I want you to know, A Wind in the House of Islam. Thank you so much, David, for being with us today. Thank you, Timothy. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.